This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hi, and welcome to Smarter Lawcast with Hall & Wilcox. My name's Mark Dunphy, and I'm a partner at the firm. In this season of our Lawcast, we're looking at what you need to do if you want to start business in Australia. How do you initially enter the market? What are the employment and visa issues particular to Australia? Do you need foreign investment review board clearance? We'll be discussing all this and more in this season. For the first episode today, I'm joined by my fellow partners and colleagues, Oliver Yankowski and Jackie Barrett, and we're going to discuss market entry into Australia. We're going to look at what you need to do if you want to first establish a business in Australia. What are the first things you need to consider? And we're going to be asking whether there's any particular frustrations that we're finding when clients try and enter into Australia. Oliver, can I perhaps start with you, given your very broad experience in working with clients entering into Australia, particularly from Europe? What are the first things somebody would need to consider when they're looking to establish operating their business in Australia? Yeah, Mark, um, thank you and welcome, everybody. Um, So what you would look at is first you establish whether it's actually a market for you. You know, it's a market analysis. Um, That is something that um, we are often not involved as lawyers. Um, That is a commercial um, arrangement. There's, you know, chambers of commerce and others that look at, um, you know, whether your business model has, um, you know, chances of success in Australia. Once you've established that you actually want to come here and that, um, uh, you know, you've worked out a bit of a business plan. Uh, and of course, market entry can be many things. It can be just setting up subsidiary and bringing over two staff. It can also be um, acquiring already existing business for $100 million, right? And anything in between could be joint ventures, could be many, many different things. But if you look at sort of this trite and, and classic market entry from an overseas company that wants to start sell their products or services in Australia um, and then have a local presence. One of the first things you need to look at is um, whether you want to set up an entity in Australia, uh, that could be a company or another entity, um, or whether you want to use the already existing company, um, the overseas company, to conduct the business in Australia. So let's... um, look at the first option, setting up an entity, and that is what clients choose very frequently and the most common form of entity that clients set up is a so-called proprietary limited company, an Australian proprietary limited company. It's a company limited by shares. The other option is the overseas entity actually carries on business in Australia. To be able to do that, the overseas entity need to register in Australia. And um, that's done with um, the corporate regulator in Australia called the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. We can help with that. The overseas entity needs to you know, lodge certain documents and so on and so forth. And then once successful, we'll be assigned what's called an ARBN, an Australian Registered Business Number. And once that's been assigned, that overseas entity can carry on business in Australia. Oliver, can I ask, is, it, is, is that largely a procedural step about the ASIC application or are there real material hurdles that a business has to, um, has to meet in order to be granted that approval? 
Um, it is largely around um, actually demonstrating that you exist, what your name is, your constituent documents, um, that you're solvent and so on and so forth. One of the things to consider though in both instances, whether it's you know, registering a foreign company or setting up a subsidiary, you do need a local person, an actual individual in Australia, right? In the instance of setting up subsidiary, that is called the local resident director. So at least one director of the subsidiary needs to ordinarily reside in Australia. Doesn't need to be an Australian citizen, but um, it, the person needs to ordinarily reside in Australia. In the instance of registering the foreign entity, you need to appoint what's called a local agent. And that local agent, again, needs to ordinarily reside in Australia. Often that is the biggest hurdle to set up an entity or to register the foreign entity because you actually need someone on the ground here. Great. Jackie, perhaps if I can ask you with regard to the employee side of things, if a business does establish itself in any of the ways that Oliver described in Australia, is it are they then free just to bring their employees from offshore into Australia or are the hurdles that need to be jumped? Thanks, Mark. Very good question. And it's one that comes up for our clients all the time. Uh, it is not the case that when you set up here in Australia, whether it's through an Australian entity or you register your uh, overseas entity that you can just bring your staff in uh, without jumping through a few hoops, as it were. Um, certainly, we have a number of clients who set up subsidiaries here and then want to employ Australian but resident employees. And in that sense, it is easier. Uh, but it's certainly, uh, there are still challenges because there needs to be an understanding of local workplace laws uh, and some of them are very unique. Mark, you'd know better than anyone. Uh, and I think the workplace regime here in Australia is much more rigorous than some other countries. And a lot of protections are in place for the employees as, as they rightly should be. Uh, but for an, an overseas company coming in, if they wanted to bring staff from overseas, uh, there'll be issues uh, that they need to contend with, like getting visas for them. Um, now for that, uh, you'll need, it's obviously not my area of expertise, but you would need to go through a process of application. And so there are a number of uh, steps that need to be followed to bring that person into Australia and ensure that they're able to reside here and work here. Great. So we'll chat to Christopher Kunasingham in a separate episode with regard to visa requirements. But the point is at this stage, it's not just as straightforward as establishing your business in Australia and then bringing your people from offshore in to operate it. There are um, uh, there are procedural steps that you need to follow. That's definitely the case. And then uh, once here, depending on the industry in which you operate, there might be some other steps that you need to comply with. In terms of those other steps, um, Jackie, are there any um, forms of licences that businesses who want to operate in Australia need to have? Uh, Yes. Um, well, that's a, that's, that can be a hard question to answer. There's, there's obviously a variety of things that could apply to your particular industry. If I give some examples, that might be best. Um, so, for example, if you are a pharmaceutical company that wants to come into Australia uh, and you have products that you want to sell here, it, there's every likelihood that you'd need to register those products um, with the Therapeutic Goods Authority, for example. 
Um, if you were a hospitality business that was coming in, you may need to get various licenses, permits and other registrations to be able to set up your hospitality business. Um, uh, for example, if you're a hotel, you would certainly need um, registrations at local, state and government level uh, in terms of running that hotel and getting the various permissions, uh, including things like liquor licensing. Um, Ollie, were there any, I mean, I've, I can give lots of other Yeah, so, I mean, there's no general business license that you need in Australia. No, in other true. countries, you need, every business needs to be licensed. That's not the case. It's definitely in certain areas, Jackie, as you rightly mentioned, you know, regulatory approvals. Uh, what's probably worth mentioning is that um, when you set up the entity, you do need some tax registrations. So you need to get an Australian business number, an AVN, if your turnover is over $60,000 in Australia. Um, you also need to apply for TFN, tax file number. Uh, there's payroll, tax registrations, um, and so on and so forth. So those things, um, they need to be ticked off at the start for, for the business to be able to operate. Oliver, perhaps a question for you. With, it's a very complicated issue, I know, with regard to tax. But how relevant for a business coming into Australia and the way they want to consider coming into Australia are the different tax considerations that they might need to take into account? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Good question. Um, so let's uh, start with, you know, again, the two different options, you know, setting up subsidiary. So setting up a subsidiary, the subsidiary in Australia will need to um, prepare and file an income tax return um, with the Australian Taxation Authorities. It's called the ATO, Australian Taxation Office. If you um, set up um, a branch office, so you uh, register the foreign entity and operate in Australia, then it depends. You may or may not have to lodge an income tax return. And that depends on whether you have a permanent establishment. That's a tax law concept, whether you have a permanent establishment in Australia. Um, that's the income tax side. You do need to think about, particularly when you set up a subsidiary, sort of longer term questions. You know, the profit you generate in Australia, um, hopefully you do generate a lot of profit. Um, one sort of the, um, you know, startup costs are being um, paid back. Often the foreign entity actually provides a loan to the um, subsidiary here. And then once that's been repaid um, and then profits are being generated, how do you get that back to your, um, you know, host jurisdiction where, where your um, mother companies incorporated? Um, they're actually sort of tax planning questions. And yeah, you do need to think about them quite carefully. Um, it's not so much for the initial setup, but then later down the track, um, it, it's, it's really important to have thought about it, how you do that. And there's also um, indirect tax in Australia, and people are a bit surprised by that sometimes. The so-called stamp duty is um, the most common one. Um, so stamp duty is applicable. Um, unfortunately, it's administered by the states. So Australia, there's a Commonwealth of Australia, um, which is the whole country, federal system, and that administers income tax. Um, so direct tax and indirect tax, um, like stamp duty is administered by the states. So there's different states, you know, the state of New South Wales or Victoria, other states, and each of them have their own um, stamp duty regime. And um, you need to be aware of that. If you acquire certain assets in those states, you may be subject to stamp duty. And the most common uh, forms are real estate and cars. Great. 
you mentioned, Oliver, the issue of differences in states uh, with regard to, to stamp duty and these indirect taxes. Jackie, can I ask you, what, aside from those issues of indirect tax and stamp duties, is it a federal system of law that prevails with regard to the entities that you're going to set up with, or is each state have different requirements with regard to how you might choose to set up and structure your entity? I would say generally it's the federal system that would apply to the corporate structure that gets adopted by our overseas clients that come into Australia. And so to register a company here, it is under Commonwealth law. We have what's called the Australian Securities Investments Commission that applies. And so in terms of structure, uh, it would be quite rare for an overseas company to come in and take up some of the so state-based offerings for business entities. So the type of state-based offering might be uh, an incorporated association or an association that would be very rare. So it's more likely that you'd be dealing with federal or Commonwealth law in relation to the structure of your business. Um, the Corporations Act here in Australia is the, is the legislation that really binds uh, most of the operations of the company. Although I should add that all companies have uh, got a set of rules that apply to their operation called constitution. And if you don't have a constitution, uh, the Corporations Act steps in with what's called a set of replaceable rules. And so at all times, those rules are governed by the, the Commonwealth system, um, as it were. Great, terrific. Tell me, Oliver, about the limitations or any limitations that Australia has about foreign ownership of businesses here and assets here from a, from a high level. In a separate episode, we'll be looking at that in some detail, but just at a really high level, um, are there limitations and in what situations might they apply? Yeah, Mark, um, there are limitations. Um, so Australia has a foreign investment um, review board, it's called. So there are a set of rules uh, that apply where the government um, actually steps in and says, no, this acquisition um, either needs consent from uh, us, from the government, as the federal government, or um, it's actually um, not allowed, or there's restrictions on acquisitions, right? And there um, depends on the um, industry. Um, so if they're um, security relevant industries, you know, defense, media, and so on and so forth, um, it can be difficult. Um, also, um, if you have foreign governments investing, and therefore um, we need to be quite careful, and I know the other episode will talk about that, even if there's quite a small foreign government ownership of the acquirer of an Australian asset, it can cause issues. Um, and then, um, but there's also then um, thresholds, right? So if it's a, um, if the asset is not worth um, very much and the thresholds are often intense on hundreds of millions, if it's below that, it doesn't need approval. It's above that, you need to go through the process. One thing to note is residential real estate in all instances needs approval and real estate in, in general is, is an area where you always need to think about the, approval. I would add to what Oli said and just say this is something that you should address very early in your planning because the timeframes for getting FERB approval uh, seem to be extending <laughs> on a daily basis, but it can take several months to get those sign-offs. So if you have a transaction that you're planning and that you want to uh, launch 
in a particular time frame, you definitely need to have the FERB approval at the top of your list. Yeah, Jackie, uh, very well said, because um, we closed the project on Friday and <laughs> FERB approval came through at 5.30 p.m. on that Friday. Oh. After The government can actually um, extend their own deadline. You know, yes. um, they have a certain uh, number of weeks to respond to your application, but then they just extend it unilaterally. Yep. So it's not much you can do. So it's... That's true. Yeah, and quite. The, it was and, a nail by town. <laughs> and pandemics have not helped with this situation. No. So uh, definitely a top priority. Oliver, you touched earlier on about um, the requirement to have directors of subsidiaries. And could we just drill down on that um, a little bit further? Is it possible for an entity operating in Australia to have non-resident a non-resident director, a non-resident director only, or is there a requirement for there to be um, a director on the ground here at all times? Yes, there is a requirement um, for every Australian company to have at least one local resident director. And as mentioned earlier, that is a director that ordinarily resides in Australia. Uh, however, uh, an unlimited number of um, overseas directors can be appointed. And um, in our um, you know, the, our clients very frequently do that. They appoint one local resident director and uh, a number of overseas director. Also, it's probably worth mentioning that um, there are professional directors in Australia. Um, they are actually um, people that provide that service for a fee and that is legal, right? So it's uh, particularly when you have a smaller market entry and the, um, you know, the, the company, the client doesn't have anyone here, they'll engage the services of a professional director, often that's um, accounting firms or other directors, they can fill that role for a fee. The other thing that's worth mentioning is uh, something that's uh, quite new, it's only came in a couple of months ago, um, the requirement for each director to obtain what's called a DIN, a director identification number. Um, so every director needs to obtain from now, from April, actually, um, so April 2022, um, each director before the appointment um, needs to apply and be granted this DIN number. It's a unique number. You only need to apply once. You have that for the rest of your life. If you're an Australian, it's quite simple. But if you're a foreign director, um, it can be really time-consuming. It uh, can take, in our, uh, you know, one case, it took uh, over 12 weeks. Unfortunately, it's something that we can't do for the overseas director. The overseas director, in short, needs to um, provide certain identity documents in their home jurisdiction and then go to an Australian embassy or to public notary and get them certified uh, and then translate it. And then there's all kinds of issues with um, if it's not the right addresses and so on and so forth. It's a very elaborate um, and, and uh, a process that can take a long time. So if you want to incorporate into Australia um, and you want to appoint foreign directors, you need to do that early. One other thing, what we uh, see more and more is, and what's becoming more attractive is that we actually incorporate a company only with Australian directors, open a bank account, because opening a bank account, if you're yeah. a foreign owned company can take three months, you wouldn't believe it, but it is true. Australia has only four major banks and they are very difficult to deal with when it comes to those things in our experience. So you incorporate that company only with Australians, you open a bank account, then you transfer the shares and then you appoint uh, foreign directors. So if you need a company fast, that's the way to do it. We can help. Right. 
Maybe um, given this um, episode was looking at things at a high level, perhaps Jackie can we conclude this episode by um, just looking at the issue of, of accounting and financial related services. Every entity that comes to Australia to start operating their business um, here will have accountants and financial advisors in their home domicile, um, typically. Is there a requirement that they have to engage Australian accountants or can they continue to use the services of the entities um, that they've been using? Really, it's an interesting issue that comes up quite often. Thanks, Mark. Um, most of our clients, uh, well, in answer specifically to your question, um, it is still possible to continue using the providers that you've been using overseas, but there is, well, they would have to be working in conjunction with an Australian firm to provide that support. So um, a lot of the clients that come into Australia, I suppose, have global operations and so, and hence they might have a global firm that works for them, which can be very handy. Um, but there are specific things that the Australian, the new Australian entity would need to comply with um, in order to meet Australian tax law requirements and accounting and reporting obligations. And for that, you'd need an Australian specialist to be assisting. And so that might be able to be provided by your existing firm, uh, depending on if they have a global um, uh, global operations. Um, otherwise, um, you'd be best placed to have um, an, a local Australian um, accountant and financial advisor appointed to assist you in operating the business here in Australia. Jackie, I also wanted to ask you um, about intellectual property um, laws uh, and as they apply in Australia to entities, entities uh, coming in to operate here for the first time and at a high level things that they should be aware of. Uh, thanks, Mark. Um, there are a number of things to consider um, for a foreign business coming into Australia. Um, of course, Australia operates a separate system of trademark registration, patent registration and design registration here. Um, they also have um, copyright laws um, which apply automatically. And so in a, number, in a lot of countries, copyright law is something you need to register for protection. Uh, but under Australian law, copyright applies automatically to any works that are, that are created in a material form. So it is highly advantageous to a business in the sense that the copyright law accommodates uh, the business automatically owning the material works of an employee. But if a business comes into Australia and wants to work with contractors initially, it is important that that business understands that they would need to expressly assign the intellectual property that is created by that contractor to the business. Otherwise, that contractor will be deemed to own the intellectual property that is created. So that's important to note. From a trademark perspective, we often see clients coming in from overseas seeking to register trademarks well in advance of when they propose to actually enter the market. It's important to note that one of the requirements for trademarks in Australia is use of that mark. And so it would not, um, it, it probably wouldn't help an international business to come into Australia and register their trademark, say, two years before they turn up on our shores. It's certainly the case that they should have um, in the works, have the plan to have a physical presence in Australia uh, within, you know, say six months of when the registration occurs so that there's no risk that the trademark could be struck off the register. 
Um, the same goes for patents. Uh, if you have patents uh, in other jurisdictions, you will need to apply separately and to get that pr protection separately. Um, if you have a patent, you, you will appreciate that it takes ages to get that patent through. So again, it's like a, a, it probably is on your list of things to do from a planning perspective to get the patent registrations in place um, and to be able to move through all the regulatory requirements for that patent registration. Great, fantastic. Um, as an employment lawyer, I find um, that businesses that I advise that aren't Australian-based can get extremely frustrated about Australian employment laws, particularly North American businesses and the concept that uh, employment at will doesn't exist here um, and the involvement of unions, um, et cetera. So clients, international clients um, that I act for can find that very frustrating. I wanted to ask you both, perhaps starting with you, um, Oliver, about what do you hear from the many, many hundreds, if not thousands of businesses that you've helped establish themselves here? What do you hear are the, um, are the greatest frustrations or Australian nuances that they need to get their heads around that really are counterintuitive to the way that businesses operate outside of Australia? Yeah, really good question, Mark. I mean, really how I would answer this is uh, never assume, right? So the worst thing you can do is as a foreign business, you just assume it's the same then in the jurisdiction you come from in Australia. Um, and then people say, oh, what we've set up in the UK before, surely that's the same. Well, not necessarily same language, but not necessarily the same laws, right? Um, so in terms of what areas are um, frustrating, I mean, the, the director identification number is frustrating people. Uh, the fact that uh, there's, all, there's not many banks to choose from is uh, frustrating people opening a bank account. And um, also though, um, I think what's important, it's not just in Australia, there's more general consideration, is sort of control. You set up a business here and you engage um, local management and you need to give the local management enough freedom so that they can work on a day-to-day -day basis, but not too much freedom that um, you know they run off and, and do the wrong thing. And um, that is often uh, something that we see uh, people get wrong uh, with not great consequences down the track um, and having to, you know, replace local management. And that's sort of this typical um, culture. You have the Australian culture, you have the culture in you know, wherever the company is overseas um, and they don't necessarily mix um, that all that well. Um, what other things probably that's all I would say. I mean, Jack, do you want to, yeah, um, absolutely. I think one of the big uh, concerns for clients that I've worked with has been the whole director requirement. Um, finding yeah. that appropriate resident director here in Australia can be challenging. Um, and, but as Oliver said, that there are professional directors who will provide that support. Um, but there's a limit to kind of the role that those professional directors will be willing to play long term. And that's because the Australian corporate law around director roles is so strict. And so it's something that you need, uh, if you are in Australia for the long term, to be aware of and to have a plan in place to have a trusted person who will be able to step into the director role. Um, we had an interesting example the other day where actually a client had chosen to exit the Australian market 
and uh, in doing so had deregistered their company, but had um, not had forgotten to deal with bank accounts and manage um, arrangements with customers, which seems a little bit odd that you would forget, but you did. They did forget, and um, uh, but it it led to a scenario where customers were paying money into a bank account that was no longer able to be controlled by the company because it had yeah, I've, I've had so, a similar case before. So yeah, and so there are just little yeah little things that you need to obviously stay on top of, but the director roles, the director stuff is, um, has always come up as an issue. The other oh. point, um, Mark, is perennially is the um, not understanding the workplace laws because they are complex and different. And I do lots of work coming from the US and um, I have had some really interesting conversations about long service leave and different entitlements um, with our US clients because uh, it's certainly not something that uh, is available uh, in in the US. And so um, it's about coming to grips with all of that, particularly if you're buying a business that has a, a lot of staff um, and being able to um, respond to the requests of those staff and understand what they're expecting in terms of your management of the business um, once you take over. Yeah, I might just add uh, two other things. Again, they're not necessarily legal. Uh, one of them is a skill shortage in Australia. Mm -hmm. To get qualified people is actually difficult or can be difficult. And yes, you can get them in with visas, but that's, you know, takes a while. The other one is that it's sort of, it's a shallow market, right? Um, it's a small market. If uh, you want to buy goods or services, uh, well, there's often only a handful of providers. In other jurisdictions in the US and Europe, you might have 20 or 30 to choose from. Here, often you have um, a few big providers and they share the market and it's quite different market dynamics to what you find in other bigger jurisdictions. And on the subject matter of providers, I think it's wise for a company that's looking to come into Australia to, to do a bit of investigation and interview a few different potential providers. Uh, all too often I see, uh, say, global companies um, perhaps appoint advisors, maybe on the recommendation of an individual or um, some other arrangement, but they haven't, they, they tend not to be a good match. Uh, and so it is worth taking that time to perhaps interview a couple of the different advisors so you, re you know, that, so you're sure that they understand your business and that and what your requirements are. Great. I think what you're both saying uh, is that the tyranny of distance um, really continues to exist. And uh, to a certain extent, yes. Yeah, can be very limiting, particularly with regard to the start, current um, staffing issues. And, um, yeah. to, to ship the shipping rates from here to Perth, from the east coast of Australia to Perth, are astronomical. The other, the other thing that's a bit controversial that I would always recommend, I always recommend to clients is come here, come and enjoy Australia and visit us because that's when you'll get a, a bit more of an appreciation of the country and the size of the country. Um, you know, we're, we are a big country and um, there is a lot to contend with in terms of depending on what state you decide to set up business in. So um, definitely think about coming for a visit. I recommend January uh, <laughs> Melbourne Australian Open. There's always a good time to oh, come. Yeah, Summer in Australia. Great. Well, thank you everybody for listening to today's episode. I really hope you've learned something about how to enter the Australian market uh, from my colleagues, Olivia Jankowski, who heads up our uh, European desk and Jackie Barrett, who heads up our North American desk. If you have any questions, please feel free to get in touch with us. You can find our details on our website, paulandwilcox.com.au, 
or you can connect with us via LinkedIn. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review and follow our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and you can subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes. Thanks for your time.